Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off-the-shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs' Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're going to be talking to Guy Duncan, the CTO of Tide, a fintech making huge disruptive waves in the business banking market. And what I love about Guy is the lens that he uses for his leadership and the work he does and how he does that work. The lens of yoga. Interesting and intriguing, eh? So let's not delay. Let's get Guy into the space to hear his wisdom and success emanating from his approach. Welcome, Guy. Welcome to CTO Confessions Podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do, sir? Yeah, so I'm Guy Duncan. I'm the CTO at Tide. Um, I'm a serial CTO. So I've been in technology and product for a long time, an older guy. (laughs) (laughs) I have the gray hairs to prove it. I, you know, listen, I've just been a perpetual geek. So uh, when I was a little kid, you know, you're talking about 10, 11, 12 years old. I had a brother who was four years older and my kind of first foray into technology. This was when in the seventies, this is when we had mainframes. Um, my father was a professor at the university. He was a professor in fine arts and he got as a professor, he got time on the computers, the mainframes. And so my brother and I got into computer programming. And so at 11, 12, I learned some COBOL. And we basically would program punch cards at home. We'd stamp them and we would stack and then we would roll in a wheelbarrow. And the only computer time we could get would be like one in the morning. So it'd be like one in the morning on a Saturday. And my par- we'd talk to my parents and they'd be like, okay. So we'd pack all the punch cards into the wheelbarrow and we'd go up to the university. We'd run them all through, check them all, run them through. And then we'd sit outside and wait. And then the print dot matrix print would print the program and then we'd sit there and read it. And you know what we were programming? I would, we would read it and be like, oh my God, you killed my red dragon. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons games. Really? So, yeah. yeah. So, so that, that was my first foray into technology. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious around that because kids... I don't know if this is kind of like the grumpy old uh, TC here, the grumpy old man TC, but kids don't seem to kind of have that uh, that oomph to want to do that. I mean, to get get up in the early hours of the morning to go and do some punch card in computing, I mean, that must have been a real drive for you. Yeah, well, we were just infinitely curious, right? We were fascinated. And this idea, right, this idea of taking logic and thinking and, you know, bits, zeros and ones, and putting in some kind of semblance of an order in order to ask a question to then get an answer. That was just fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. So um, I've been intrigued by that all ever since. And and, and talking about punch cards, I, I, you know, I've I've never had the honor of working with that, uh, um, uh, you know, punch cards and stuff. I've seen, I've got a sample of one, actually. Uh, I I found one in a secondhand shop once and I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to keep this baby. Um, But I mean, uh, the kind of uh, feedback loop of, knowing what you want to do and then being able to going to get a result out of that was quite compared to nowadays it's quite a long drawn out process yes yes, yes. they're extremely manual process so what you can do with a compiler now and what you can do in terms of functional programming languages um you know it's just it's it's an order of magnitude different but yeah. a lot of the underlying theory right where we go back to Turing or you go back to the core computer science it's all pretty much there We've had this massive evolution and change in terms of compute, compute power, which is now, you know, dig, now I'm, you know, I've been digitally native for about 20 years now. Uh, I started moving into digital in the late 1990s, actually, built out the first internet voting platform ever used in binding elections, wow. worked in the elections domain for eight years, really know that topic extremely well, and learned, really cut my teeth on cryptography in the election space. Um, you know, worked with people like Ron Rivest and David Chom on distributed key architecture, which is the foundation of Bitcoin. It's the blockchain. It's 
and you know really lends to my math based expertise really really enjoyed that wow and you know digitally native now if you think about the power of compute that we have in like AWS as an example or Azure or GPC it's incredible it's just incredible it's such a game changer people don't they don't realize how constrained we were i mean for the longest time i mean you know if you think about compile time just think about compile time um it's just mind blowing i mean if you think about punch cards wheelbarrow going up running the program i mean that that was all compile time so. yeah absolutely yeah 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 i can i can imagine uh, uh, you know from a business because i'm in the business agility space looking to see where the constraints are where our blockers are and then you know you got the the speed of the wheelbarrow you know in your in your case you know looking to see how can we speed that up you know <laughs> brilliant yeah. and again i'm really curious as to around you know being in that uh, time window where you've seen things transform so much as a leader i mean back then did you ever dream of it getting to where it is now um i think you know if you talk if you think about trends right and then you think about ultimately as technologists right as ctos i think one of the biggest kind of confessions is you know you really are getting paid to really give a think about where things are going to make bets about what what's going to really work out i think you know i as an entrepreneur in the late 90s you know in 97 i basically left a really good job and started a technology company and we basically built out content management systems right before there were really content management systems mm. and we focused on digital enablement for the internet right for businesses right and i packaged that business and sold it um was successful in doing that started with myself and another person as a co-founder and built it up to 65 people and then sold sold a chunk of the business my chunk to the, our biggest customer which ended up being that election company wow. and and that was really transformative because you know basically since the late 90s been working in the internet but to answer your question you know you've seen this kind of converging capability i you know first i think the first kind of breathtaking kind of was Moore's law, right? Where you saw the compute, you know, in your laptop or the server that you had in a closet get ever ever and faster. And then, you know, you were actually building websites but you were hosting those services. And then you had the evolution of kind of the data center. And then you had the evolution, you know, then AWS came out, right? And AWS becoming out was just the absolute game changer. But to answer your question directly, I think in our in the back of our mind there were a lot of technologists and a lot of people and a lot of friends that i had computer scientists who were much more knowledgeable than i i think we all felt that the mainframe metaphor would converge on the cloud yes i mean we we really thought that that would happen i don't think any of us expected it to happen so quickly i love this uh, word that you use convergence because all these technologies they're all kind of growing in their own maybe silos to a certain extent but they kind of come together and then some kind of magic something becomes more than the sum of its parts you know it's that's right that's right and and i think when you think about apis right i mean or cross browser based you know like chrome and and javascript like who would have thought or imagined that javascript would become so powerful in terms of client tech i mean it's crazy it's crazy and then the whole thing about open source i think it's just one of the unsung heroes you know the the open source capabilities which has lowered cost on licensing right yeah um and basically freed us up and the cost now is compute and apis right mm. and that's just amazing that's just crazy it's just crazy i mean what we do at tide if you would have done this in the early 90s the cost would have been 20 times 30 times the cost right and to, to basically create it and that was a barrier to entry but now the barrier entry is so low it's all about innovation cycle time right getting the right thinking quick and getting your product and services to market quickly so really really interesting evolution so it's almost like the open source industry has been the kind of unsung hero or heroine of of the software industry yeah and i i think that's really accurate and i like to think of it as you know go back to greek mythology um to me the greek goddess of open source would be metis metis's mother was athena the protector of athens right um yeah i think that 
you know, when you think about Metis as this close guardian of wisdom and nurturing and knowledge, it's it's incredibly powerful. And then just most recently, if you talk about the case last week with the U.S. Supreme Court between Google and uh, Google Android and basically Oracle, Oracle, which owns Java, was suing to basically take away the API commonality and open source nature of Java. And that was a massive, massive threat to that open source community. But yay, Metis won. Metis won. <laughs> yes. You know, the wisdom, the wisdom won, the knowledge won. And uh, I think that's just so exciting and so, 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 so fantastic for the community in general. I mean, that's fascinating, um, Guy. And what I find really interesting is this kind of democratization of the ability to be able to develop some of this kind of stuff. Because um, you kind of mentioned here that there's this kind of entry level uh, that, you know, the, the bar to kind of enter into some of these kind of fields and applications and solutions is really difficult. But it's going to be lowered, which then creates this explosion of innovation. Well, I think that I think that, um, you know, if we think about the concept of democracy, right, coupled with this super strong kind of concept of a meritocracy. Yeah. To me, that's what open source really accomplishes. It's it's really the bringing together of the technologies to say this is the best, right? This is the best standard. This is the best way to do it with basically this kind of open use and, you know, the MIT open source, the GNU license. It, it's really, really powerful. And then the fact that people give so much back in terms of the code it just accelerates things because, you know, they, it just compounds. You get engineers working on top of it, on top of it, on top of it. And that's just so, so powerful. And then what you do is you consume it. Like at Tide, right, we consume so many different open source libraries and open source projects to build that into the platform, which allows us to go faster. But also it allows us to go smarter because you have to be extremely thoughtful about what you're pulling in and what you're using, right? You have to have metas. You've got to listen to the wisdom about what you're doing and you have to be thoughtful about it. And then you've got to think about the outcomes that you want to achieve over a period of time, just to simply say, oh yeah, we're open source. So like, as an example, we're really talking about heavily at Tide about client technology and we're really getting down with Flutter and Dart and we've got a project called Universal Client, which is basically we're going to use Flutter and Dart for iOS, Android, and web in one code base. And we're going to basically extenuate the microservices with Flutter to basically build out that layer that basically all the clients talk to. Very powerful, but it's open source. It's not, it started at Google, but it's an open source community. And so we, were, we, we will contribute to Flutter and Dart, and we will be part of that community, and we'll ride those rails. And we're making a bet. Right, we're making a bet. We're th- we're 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 betting that one that Google will keep that project, right? Secondly, we're betting that that technology will continue to be really good, and also we're betting that we're going to be able to transition our engineers in terms of that context of learning Flutter and Dart, which are different syntax, different different programming languages. Yes. And that's interesting. That that's that's the job I think of a CTO is to really think those through and then convince people internally that that's the way to go. Yeah. That's leadership. But then as you go down the path to be with them on the path to be, get that success, right? Uh, because if you don't get the success, then no one will go down the path. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is a this is a question I had for you. The art of interpreting technology and the market trends as a foundation for technology and product planning. So, you know, tech leaders are sitting in this really uh, important space, you know, um, yeah. And, and navigating the, the direction you go because it's make or break. You could get this wrong, you know. Um, so, I mean, how, how do you deal with that as a, as a tech leader? Well, I think that for me, in terms of as being the CTO, I think my job, I always look at it from a percentage of allocation of my time and effort. And if I'm spending two or three days a week working on innovation, then that's the right cadence. The, the struggle is how do you work on innovation versus kind of day-to-day ops, problems, escalations, et cetera. So the, the more cycle time that you can work on innovation, ultimately the CTO needs to unlock that innovation for a business. I think that's the ultimate confession. Um, you know, if you use the metaphor of confession in terms of religion, right? Mm-hmm. That's the mantra. The mantra is basically innovation and basically 
exposing and releasing that innovation in a really positive way so that the business can accelerate. So it's not good enough to say it takes us, you know, Dora metrics, like, you know, we, we really down with the Dora metrics, we really lean into lead time and how long it takes to, from a time you start a sprint, how many sprints does it take to get that out live, right? Yeah. A, a product or a product feature. And, you know, it's think, simple things like how often can you release your code? Right. right. How often can you release your iOS client? How often can you release your Android client? How often can you release your web client? How often can you release your backend services? So that is, people think maybe that's not innovation, but that actually is innovation. Because if we can get our code to market faster and we can get it into our customers' hands to get their feedback, then that's, that's less friction and that's more feedback to get the customer exactly what they want, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're data-driven. Um, so the more time that you can spend on really accelerating, really making the engineer experience really good, you can then release innovation. You can create time and space for people to think and contemplate to come up with the right idea. Because ultimately, it's not the innovation that I think of. It's not the ideas. It's the innovation of our teams. And as a servant leader, right, my job as a servant leader, truly as a servant leader, is to protect the team and remove their obstacles, right? So that they have time and space to innovate. I'm looking forward to the day, we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm looking forward to the day where we can have one day per week or maybe one day every two weeks, whatever, which are innovation days yeah. across Tide. And these are days where the engineers can basically pull whatever they want out of the backlog and they can inject into the backlog, of course, and pull anything they want out of that to basically move the needle and go forward. Um, and yeah. have that and have it be directed by the team. In other words, go back to that concept that I was talking about meritocracy, where the team, they basically they vote by what they work on. They vote by what and you trust the team. Right. You don't have to dictate to the team. You can trust the team to basically come up with the right answer. Yes. And, and that's really powerful to me. That, that's, and that's that's how you scale. I love that. You kind of mentioned around having this time to be able to then innovate once you've carved out this space to breathe, you know, and the, and the business as usual is, is balanced well enough with the time for innovation. A lot of companies have actually solved this, you know, or, or, or have they? I mean, this is my perception of Google is where they allocate so much time for you to kind of, I don't know, knock yourself out, try something, pick something off the backlog. Well, uh, I can speak about this from firsthand experience. So when I was the global CTO at BMW, I was the CTO for the connected company, basically for the BMW connected app. And it was live, the app that connected to your car, that did a bunch of experiences, it was live in 64 countries around the world. And that was a great experience. We you know, lived in Munich, uh, worked, at worked at corporate headquarters. It was really, really powerful experience. One thing working at BMW was it opened up doors. And so we got down with Flutter and Dart with BMW, right? It was really, really successful. And they just launched what I started there with them in 12 countries, which is a great accomplishment. It's great to see that happen. Um, but we went out to Mountain View and we spent four days with three days. And like, as an example, we had a session with Hightower, the inventor of Kubernetes, right? He basically talked for a couple hours about Kubernetes and how to use it and what it's for and what, what it's good for. So, so we had those sessions. The other was basically we talked about their engineering practices and the Dora metrics that they do and how they basically look at um, production and production support and how they basically manage those topics. And at Google, right, it's all about, you know, like defect or defect management. Um, the cost of a defect is really calculated by the time it takes to fix it because you're that's waste. And they calculate that. And that's you're giving, if you can eliminate that waste, mm. if you can really conform to definition ready, definition of done, if you can have those high level hygiene based factors in terms of automation of code, um, you can really give time back. Because, you know, think about the production kind of consequences of Google. You know, you've got literally billions of customers on their platforms, right? With a plural, right? Hundreds of millions, right? Um, utilizing Gmail, those type of platforms. And the cost for them of an outage or a downtime or a defect is extremely high. And so, and if you think about the expectation, now we didn't need to have, this is interesting. We didn't need to necessarily have those standards about digital services 
five, 10 years ago because people had alternatives. But in FinTech, in banking at Tide, right? People literally, they have an expectation that the Tide experience is gonna be like Google. So at Tide, we have to up our game and basically have those. So we focus on API, reliability, availability. We focus on truly, truly leaning into the, the real metrics mm. of error rates. And basically, you know, what, what are the 404s? What are the 500 errors? Really leaning into it and tracking that all the way from the client. So we use Datadog internally and we instrument and we visualize and we have a service catalog and the teams are responsible for that. And we work on that all the time. Wow. And the reason why we do that is because we know that if we can get into the four sigma, four nine zone of availability, reliability, responsiveness, right? Keeping everything under 200 milliseconds in terms of response. And if we can drive these theories and practices of engineering excellence, we're giving time back. Yes. You're giving time back to our, the tied customers who come to bank with us, right? Who basically run their banking or they run their business service. They could be running, you know, they could be running their accounting with us, you know, whatever, whatever the use cases are. But to making that experience always available, in other words, like dial tone, always available, always on, to make that experience where it's super snappy, super secure. Yes. You are innovating. That yes. is innovation. Yes. Because if you can make that part of your hygiene, you make it part of your, your basically your meritocracy, and you can make it part of the DNA that you live in the engineering product engineering community. What happens is it becomes institutional. It becomes part of part of it. Mm -hmm. If you do things like you eliminate member facing defects, right? Because a defect, I, we don't talk about bugs at Tide. We talk, we say defects, mm -hmm. because a defect is nothing more than we coded it wrong. Yes. But it's okay to code it wrong. What's important is that you can make the correction to fix that error quickly with very little effort. Yeah. And uh, without getting too kind of technical, so I guess your infrastructure is set up in a way that allows you to to maintain and, and be able to make those changes without too much impact, it kind of bleeding out into all kinds of different areas. It, I don't know, encapsulation of some sort. Is, it, is yeah. that something that you've worked on hard on? Yeah, so the way we structure it at Tide is we have domains and then we have subdomains and then within the subdomains, there are services and those services are microservices. And we actually struck, we have that same pattern for client tech as well for iOS, Android and web. And basically think of it as a decomposition of those topics into very small buckets of, of responsibility, of boundary control of responsibility. And then those responsibility, those services those are mapped to teams mm. and that team runs a service catalog and it's mapped to those individual teams. So the teams they know, everyone knows. So if there's a problem with that particular service, whether that's a client or a backend service or a database service, you know where to route that ticket from a production support perspective. And then that team, they know we do dog fooding. They know they need to basically take care of that experience in production as well as in um, development. Yes. And so they're responsible for it. So they know that that's their priority. I'll so they, yeah. they, they take care of it. And, and that we live that value. And, you know, the engineers, you know, we've got things like pager duty and, you know, we've got data dogs so that we can basically have the transparency on where the issue is so that we know in the catalog, what team yeah. needs to be responsible for fixing it. So Brilliant. I, yeah. I can imagine quite a few tech leaders out there I know, if, I know if I was running a company, I'd want to know how you've instilled this culture because um, I imagine a lot of companies uh, yearn for this kind of culture. I particularly like the idea of developers owning it, owning, owning the outcome. You know, it's not just about developing right. code. It's about owning the fact that this thing bloody works at the end of the day. Um, how, how have uh, Tide come about or yourself come about creating that culture? Was, has it always been there? Is it kind of happen chance or? Well, the, you know, I've been at Tide now just coming up on, you know, in September, it'll be two years. So, um, you know, a little bit longer than a year and a half. And the blessing, the thing that I had when I came to Tide, the good news was a really good engineering culture. So really, really seriously great engineers. But the engineers weren't being listened to. So the engineers were being ignored. The engineers were basically being marginalized, not because 
there was an intention, not because people didn't want to listen to them. It was because they didn't know how to talk. They didn't know how to articulate. They didn't know how to talk about business value. They didn't know how to talk about agile economics. They didn't know how to talk about the cost of a defect. They didn't know how to how to articulate it. So what we've done is to change that culture is we've created a language and we've created a syntax that basically so everyone can focus on this. Yeah. And then really focused on definition of ready and definition of done. We're leaning now, starting to lean into definition of concept. The other thing is we did some basic things. Like when I came to Tide, everyone was talking about technical debt, technical debt, technical debt. And I said, what do you mean technical debt? There's no such thing as technical debt. And people were like, what do you mean, guy? No. I said, technical debt doesn't exist. And they're like, yes, it does. We got all this technical debt. I said, no, it's all. All of it is product debt. All of it is product debt. There's no separation of product and technology. It's all product engineering and it's all product debt. Right. So we, the first, one of the first things we did is we introduced a concept in sprint planning of a 50-50 principle, which was a guideline, just a guideline principle that said, hey, up to 50% of the work needs to be engineer-based driven. You know, refactoring code, you know, test automation, et cetera, right? Yes. At least 50%. So 50% of the capacity was basically in this 50-50 principle. Now, what happens to the 50-50 principle when you've got a deliverable, which is tied to revenue, you know, immediately you're going to cut into that. So mm-hmm. that only takes you so far. So then that was the first step. The second step was then we started leaning into going forward, new code, and we really focused on this greenfield. So we said, hey, we've got this kind of Java monolith kind of component architecture that's kind of big and chunky. Hmm. Let's break that up and let's move towards a greenfield microservice technology. And yeah. so we spliced, we organized into dojos, which was pretty interesting. So we, a dojo using kind of the Eastern philosophy for martial arts or for yoga, right? Because I'm a yogi and I like to, I practice yoga. Um, so we used that metaphor and we sliced into uh, client-based clucks. We call it clucks, which is iOS, Android, and web together. Sappies, which is all about backend engineers and and APIs, and then data, and then quality, and then cloud engineering, right? Yeah. And th- those were those were our basic, and then corporate IT's smaller supporting unit. Agile, right? Another one supporting kind of a consultative group. So those were our dojos, and that's how we organized. We did that to accelerate our practices, and that's been going really well. And now I think we're ready for our next evolution, where. We're going to basically move those into communities of practice, and we're going to organize into these pods, which are completely aligned with the business, aligned on on domains. And the idea is to resource the pods so that they're completely autonomous. Wow. Yeah. So that's the next step. And and where's that kind of drive coming from? Is that is that come from yourself, or is it kind of a collective effort? Effort? Is it kind of honest conversations? It's uh, listen. A ton of you know. Listen, I'm a. I've been around. I've been you know. I've worked. I've had as many as 1500 engineers. I've done consulting. I've worked for publicly traded companies. I mean, I'm a serial CTO, so I've been around the block. Yeah. So I, I've got tons of ideas. What I what I have value is experience and I know what doesn't work. Yeah. Everything else is up for grabs and it's a very extremely collaborative environment in terms of you know really talking about ideation and talking about how to get better and having honest conversations about what we need to do. Yeah, that, that going back to what I was talking earlier about the servant leadership and that culture, I think I was lucky at Tide because there was a real hunger for that. There was a real need for it. And it really resonated because we have this model of really linking back to our members, really linking back to the people that do business with us. And what's the most, you know, our CEO or our um, CEO for the UK market or CEO for the India market or our chief administrative officer, you know, everyone is down with that. Everyone's down with that mission. So there's not a lot of debate. It's really about, okay, what's the best thinking how to achieve this? How, how we get, how we get on with this. And then really focusing, this is also really important, focusing on outcome over process. So to really, you know, if you've got a confluence page and you've got a process, you've got a flow in Jira, it used to, when I came to Tide, people were thinking, "Okay, that's good." I'm like, no, 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 that's not that. That 
that that's indicative. What we really need to focus on is outcomes. We really need to focus on delivering that value, and we need to reduce WIP and focus on just a few things and get them done, done, get them really done, really lean into it and get it truly done, um, which is really powerful. That's a really, really powerful thing for me. It's just from a yoga, personal development kind of perspective, uh, this thing about stop starting and start finishing is just so important to me. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it, it, and, it, and if I don't finish things, I actually kind of go a little crazy. So. Yes. And I, so yeah, you know this the finishing finishing things and really kind of leaning into that. That must be quite challenging from uh, speaking to the business where they want to see uh, progress and things kind of popping out the other end. You know, output. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, outcomes are, are more softer. They're a bit more difficult to kind of maybe define. Right. And, you know, it's a bit more complex. How, how do you manage that as a tech leader? So. I think that's a really, I think that's kind of the essence and crux of what you work on every day. So to me, it's like really, let's use the metaphor of yoga. I think this is really, um, if you talk about output versus outcome, and then you talk about a yoga practice, and let's say you come to a new team and these folks want to learn yoga. And the first thing you do as a teacher or as a yogi is you say, okay, Tomorrow, we're going to start with handstands in the middle of the room. And the goal is to teach you how to do handstands in the middle of the room. You know what? After two or three days, you will not, you probably won't have anybody in your class. <laughs> right. Because everyone will be frustrated. Everyone will be completely demoralized because now, as opposed to the vision of saying, hey, let me start with this practice, which is downward facing dog. And you don't tell them that you're going to move them to handstands in the middle of the room. What you do is you build up to that very slowly and methodically. And what you do is you work the practice every day. And so to me, having the, the mindfulness to be present in the moment and not to be obsessed about tomorrow or the next week or the next quarter, to be really focused on what you have right in front of you and to focus on getting even something very small, done, done, finished, and not starting something else until that's fun. It's teaching that. It's teaching that culture. Yes. And, and it's like having a really good yoga practice or having a really good workout or, you know, and it's really relating to that. And it's trying to get that to happen every day, right? And then it's the evolution of doing the small things within a sprint cadence to say, Okay, how can we do this within a sprint so that a team, so you're, you know, something simple. How do you conform to sprint boundaries? How do you tell the business, listen, just you can put anything you want in the backlog, but when we set this commitment, we set this sprint, it's set. We don't change it. We leave the team alone for two weeks. Give them a start and an end date and give them time the two weeks. Don't come back every day and keep changing their priorities. Yes. You know what you're doing? You're driving the team insane. Stop <laughs> Just stop that. Just there's nothing good. Think about metaphor of a yoga class. Every 10 minutes, someone else is saying, now do this. By the end of the class, you're going to be mental, right? What you want is you want one voice in that yoga class that's taking you through that practice for an hour. So that's a really strong metaphor for a scrum team and kind of leaving them alone for two weeks. Yes. Is just agree upon the class, agree upon the curriculum, what you're going to be doing in the class, and then get on with it. Now, the reality is, is that some team members will crash and burn in that yoga class because you have different varying levels of skill, yeah. but the team needs to support each other and the team needs to coach each other and the team needs to help each other and take care of each other. And that's really a beautiful thing. Yes. So if you can get to that kind of basic level of understanding of care and compassion, servant leadership, right, of really supporting the team in the present context, the context of where you are today, not where you're going to be tomorrow, it's it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I, I have to confess, I love this analogy with uh, yoga and, and the philosophy from yoga and uh, you know and around yoga and bringing that into the workplace. I mean, it seems to be a really good fit. It kind of creates a state of healthy flow. Um, it uh, seems very human centric as well. So you know, I think that that the you know the the philosophy or the kind of template of yoga and the whole thing around mindfulness 
is incredibly important. So there's two things in yoga, which I think really help well in, in workplace and culture in terms of building and scaling. It's mindfulness. And then it's also um, this whole thing around well-being mm. and sustainability. So it's, 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 it's one thing to say, hey, I need to get this done. And you know, you crank and you work 100 hours in that week. Yeah, you can get something done. But can you do that in a sustained context in a healthy way for five years? Yeah. Right? So, so how, but, but listen, I mean, each individual has different working styles, right? There's some people and the data is pretty conclusive on this, right? In terms of how people work. There's some people who just simply work 80, 90 hours a week, right? And they're highly productive and they're just going to behave like that no matter what. But then there's some people, and I'm like this, I, if I work 40, if I work 40 or under, I'm kind of, I, I go, I kind of get bored. I kind of, it's like too little for me. My sweet spot is 50 to 60 hours. That's I'm really productive, really highly engaged. It's like a, the right balance. Yeah. And when I, every, I notice that every hour I go over 60, I become grumpy. I become difficult, right? <laughs> I become agitated because it's too much. I get yeah. overloaded. So it's, it, it's also finding about kind of your individual cadence and it's to really, and to be empathetic and human about different, different people's different approaches. I love to tell the story. I had a, in one job I had, I had this brilliant engineer. She, her name is Dimi and she was just phenomenal. She was so good at what she did. And, and I had to defend her all the time because she only worked maybe 20 or 30 hours a week. Wow. But, but her pattern was she would think about something and she would basically in our sprint planning, she would have, you know, you'd have this, she'd have this time. It was like thinking time. And sometimes it was like two or three days of thinking. And then she would produce this code. And every time she produced the code, it was brilliant. Wow. Because when, what, and then we found out, you know, I got to know her a little bit better and we really leaned into it. And she had a ba background in classical music. She was Indian in descent and she was classically trained on the sitar. And what she would do is she would think about a problem and then she would actually, her coding time would go way down and she would play the sitar and she would think about the code. She'd think <laughs> about the problem. Cool. So she was coding in her head, playing the sitar. Yeah. And then she would come back and she would write this beautiful code and everyone would be just hands down like, my God. And what she was able to solve for us. So, you also have to, as a leader, you've got to be really adaptive and flexible that not everyone's the same, not everyone. And you really have to focus on the outcome, right? Not, oh, are you here? You know, and of course you need some kind of glue for rituals and daily stand up and all that kind of stuff, right? I'm not saying you don't need that. Everyone, we need those, we need those rituals, but yes. those are rituals in the dojo. But then what you do in the dojo and how you do your practice, it's really individualistic. But right. it's part of a team and the team needs to be empathetic and do that together. I think that's really kind of what I see is really powerful in terms of that yoga metaphor. And, and again, from a leadership perspective, I, uh, you coming in with all your experience, you, you've got that kind of gravity to be able to say this works, this doesn't work. How do you uh, what would you say to kind of tech leaders out there that want what you've achieved, um, but they're up against it with uh, other people, other stakeholders within the organization that don't want this and don't get this? So I think that the best advice that I have is lead by example. So lead by example. So there's a couple kind of value considerations that I think are really important is one is I, you know, listen, I don't harbor any bullies, right? Um, I, I'm totally okay with arguments. I'm okay with, you know, heated debate, all of that, you know, fiery heated debate. I love it, right? I think that's really, really good. Um, but no one should ever be an asshole. And you should really reinforce and support trust. Um, it's extremely important that you build that um, because that's how you get that glue that holds teams together and holds people together and holds teams together. So that's really, really important. But then what you need to do is you need to basically really write out the specific values for your ways of working. And the ways of working, right, in terms of what you do for, as an engineering culture or a product engineering culture, is it needs to be inclusive of things that are best practices. It needs to include things like definition of ready, definition of done, sprint boundaries, et cetera. 
guardrails to give time to the team so the team can actually do good work. Mm. That's what you should negotiate. That's what you should lean into. Um, because whatever hour you can give the team, or maybe it's like a 50-50 principle in your organization, you know, whatever, anything, any of those things is going to help. And then the other big advice is be patient. Um, all you need is one or two really good demonstrable wins. Yeah. And then people will gravitate to those patterns. And you don't need a lot. It can be a small win. And then you can say, this is what good looks like. Yeah. And then you can basically reinforce what good looks like over and over and then move more and more people to what good looks like, which then once you align on what good looks like, it allows you to get things more done, right? Get you can you can really stop starting and start finishing. The stop starting in terms of stop starting and start finishing, stop starting is also reducing whip, which I think is also one of the most valuable things you can do. Um just do less. Yeah. Like really, really have the conversation about prioritization. Actually, at any given time, what are you working on that if you don't do that, that actually the business will fail? Like how do you how do you work on the prioritization of just the absolute most important things? Because those are the things that are gonna get done anyway. Yeah. So why not just work on them? That's right. And again, speaking to experience and uh, people that uh, we've worked with in the past, getting those kind of basic, um, I mean, it's not common, yeah, it's common sense, but it's, you know, this is foundational stuff. And yet it seems to get ignored quite a lot. You know, why, why do you think it gets ignored? Well, I think it gets ignored because, listen, I mean, I think one thing that really holds engineers back is that the profile itself is not very articulate and emotional IQ can be lower, right? And they're not salespeople. So on the business side, right, you typically have people that are charismatic, verbal, right, and persuasive. And so what happens is that when you engage in terms of sprint planning and those type of activities, you know, people that are articulate, charismatic, you know, whatever, they have a tendency of getting what they want, you know? Yeah. So to protect the team is you need to build rituals that allow the team to engage. So whether that's sizing, whether that's definition ready, definition done, definition of concept, to really engage it. And then it's it's also to also make sure that in the backlogs, right, that you're always have a nice percentage of engineer driven based activities. If you, it's really easy smell test. If you go look at a backlog and it's all new feature development work, just all of it, and it's just the company tracing chasing revenue, that's a really good indication that it's probably unbalanced. And it goes back to a simple thing. It's like it's like you're doing a yoga practice, and in the yoga practice, you're only doing two or three asanas every every yoga practice. Well, if you're only doing two or three asanas, you probably don't have a very rich practice. You're right, and, and just. Just for yeah. people that aren't familiar with yoga, explain what, what, what that is. So an asana is basically a set of movements. It's could be, it could be four or five, three, five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve movements that form a movement together. And you link them, you sequence them together. And it and it's interesting, it's kind of like programming, actually. And those asanas, they have a, so like one it very famously in vinyasa flow is downward facing dog, right? or chaturanga, which is basically a process of kind of doing a push-up and then a back bend and then going back in a downward. Those are all asanas. And what you do is in a yoga practice, at least in vinyasa flow, is you connect those asanas together and that's a practice. Wow. And it's kind of art and craft. It's a lot like coding. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, yes. Because, you know, in the hands of a master, it's really great, right? In the hands of someone who doesn't know what they were doing, it can be really bad. You could actually hurt yourself. Because they could they could say do this in the wrong sequence when you're not warmed up or whatever that could really cause an injury. So yeah. it's really important that you know that instruction and those asanas and the do and that you know the the dojo master the master in the teaching you that yoga has that ex ex expertise, right? Brilliant, love this. I could speak to yoga for hours with you, Guy. I mean, I find it fascinating. And it really resonates with me. I hope, it, hope it's resonating with the audience out there because there is a deeper knowing and a deeper wisdom that plays out in all, all forms of arenas and contexts, you know? 
So one of the things you've got noted down here, Guy, uh, I've got noted down here, Guy, around your leadership is, is that the abstraction uh, levels within the organization. Mm. Yeah. So as a leader, you're going to navigate these different layers, everything from the coalface, where the work is actually really being done, yeah. delivered. And then uh, then you've got the bigger picture, the vision, where we're going, the strategies. Um, have you got any kind of advice to tech leaders out there or just explain to explain your experience of what's worked for you? There was a guy named Eric Evans who wrote a book about domain-driven design in 2003. And domain-driven design also, you know, you can read about it from Martin Fowler, uh, the famous thought worker. Um, you can go to Wiki and read about DDD, domain-driven design. But domain-driven design was instrumental in terms of helping technology to link domain logic you know, at first it started as a very vertical technical thing, but where domain driven uh, has evolved is basically linking it back to the business. So what we do is we should, the, the domains themselves, you know, the class, class method, class variables, they should match the business domain. So the software processes for like a loan application, it might have classes such as loan application customer and methods such as accept offer and withdrawal. Right. right? That's pretty simple, right? Um, but up until Eric's book, we really didn't understand that. We kind of did, but we didn't really, not, not with such, such clarity. And so when domain-driven design, it, 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 it was a way of OXO applying it to organizational design theories to basically organize that. So before I was talking about how tied, how we have domains and we've got subdomains and we've got a service catalog. And, you know, we use that context about how we organize and how we build our software. And it's very powerful because you have a domain owner. It's typically someone who's very senior from a technical perspective, but they're still a coder. They're still living in the code mm. and they can basically help reinforce it. But what's nice about a domain is that the boundary conditions for it are all within that domain yeah so therefore you don't have dependencies on other domains or if you do have dependencies on other domains they're very clear yeah. and then what then what happened after eric's work happened then in the late 2000s right and early you know 20 2010 2011 we had this whole thing around apis that started and so domain driven design on top of really good apis restful apis is just an, an API gateways is just a game changer in terms of how to link back to the business and how to organize it. At Tide, right, we've got probably 85% of our resources, a couple hundred engineers, 85% of them are working in business domains. Right. And, and to me, I'd like to get that to 100%. I mean, I don't think that's possible, but I'd like to. Yes. Because, because that's what you want is you don't want and as a CTO, you don't want this big IT organization that's not out, those resources not being allocated to the business. You want everything allocated to the business because everything should have a business outcome. Everything should have a business value. Yes. And, yeah. and, and I love that. So I really like this idea of domain-driven design applied to organizational design to really get the right structure and the right thing in place so that teams can operate autonomously. Yes. A, team, a team can deliver value with as few dependencies as possible in order to basically ship that product or ship that code inclusive of all the quality that they need to do, right? Yes. But, there's no, but there's no trade-offs. It's all embedded. It's all inclusive uh, in terms of what those outcomes are. And it all is inclusive of what good looks like in the context of very thoughtful, very clear team support. Mm -hmm. And that that team is really, really producing and doing something that is making the team extremely happy, but also producing value for Tide. But more importantly, that we're basically producing that value for the Tide members, Tide customers. That's that's great. I mean, this is wonderful. It, the, those um, the, those abstractions are actually becoming more fuzzy and uh, and less kind of handoffs between them so yeah i can imagine it creates a, a real flow of delivery and as you say autonomous they own the outcomes and and do it so coming back to uh tide i'm, I'm really interested in the uh the company that you're working for uh, which is obviously fintech um 
it must be quite challenging uh, challenging the kind of big players already in the market. Yeah, absolutely. So Tide, we, you know, when when you know if you play back to kind of early 20, you know, right right before the pandemic, Tide was just just under two percent market share. Yeah. And now we're over five percent market share. Wow. So that's really really excellent right that we basically have made so much so much incredible progress uh and we continue to grow and now one in 20 small businesses in the uk are a tide customer wow. and we're extremely proud of that uh you know we were you know we're digitally native and digitally focused and we have been just incredibly successful at um just phenomenally successful at basically scaling our business during the pandemic. And, you know, we've done this and also just all this competition, right? So yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like, it wasn't like other folks weren't trying to uh, also, you know, we, we've got, you know, in the UK market, you've got a lot of competition in terms of digital and digitally native businesses that are going after that SME sector. Yes. And so that's, it's been really, really exciting to uh, be part of that and to see that success. It's just, it's been really, really satisfying. And to see the teams really respond to it um, and really, you know, really get it and be successful in, in, in doing that. So what would you say is the kind of key, one of the key things that Tide are doing that is creating that that growth and uh, and fan base, I guess, you know? Well, I mean, one is that, you know, we, we, we're digitally native. So what that means is that if you're a Tide customer, you want to be a Tide customer and you want to set up a small business, you can effectively set up that small business and have your business banking account open in under five minutes. And we do that and we can do that all. And we do that experience all through a native mobile based iOS or Android based experience. So that's, that's incredibly exciting. That's really, really exciting. And then we also provide really good customer support. So, um, you know, we've got a really, really great CEO for the UK market, Lawrence, who's just incredibly focused on really us having kind of a mission-based culture in which uh, folks are really taken care of. And we really, you know, dog fooding, like we really live in the app. We mm. use the Tide card. Um, we use the banking account. I mean, we, we, you know, there's a lot of people that really care and we're really focused on trying to take care of that for our members. So that's really, really exciting. There's, just, a, there's a real agility in the space. There's a, a real nimbleness for you to be able to kind of uh, deliver what's needed, you know, and fix what's not working as well. Correct. That's right. That's right. And, and, yeah. and, and to look at those feedback loops in terms of our members, in terms of what works for them and what doesn't, and then build that for them. And you know, we're at Tide. We're really focused on this mission of giving time back, because you know the typical Tide customer is you know a small business owner, could be a tradesperson. They don't have a lot of employees, and for us, if we can give them time back every day and every month, that they don't have to basically run their accounting. That we can do things like use machine learning for invoice matching, for expense management. You know those type of use cases. It's eminently satisfying. It's mm. eminently satisfying because, and you're also, you know, we've at Tide, we've launched, you know, in the last 12 months, we've got a now a really cool product that if you are starting a new business, you can come to Tide and you can get your business account opened, but you can also file for your new company and you can do a company house filing and you can also do a virtual address and you can do that all basically in just a couple steps through the browser for a new business and you can help that entrepreneur. In other words, we can focus on that meantime to getting your business open so you can start, so you can get a card and you get a bank account and getting you onboarded, making that as fast and as easy, as painless as possible so that you can just get on with it and start your business. Yeah. I love, I love that. I love that about enabling those entrepreneurs and helping them to basically establish those businesses. It's, it's just incredibly exciting. 
It's really, yeah. really rewarding. I love it. I've, I've been checking out the website and some of the videos and stuff, and uh, I'm, I must admit, I'm, I'm very intrigued as the, you know, uh, the products that you got and the, and the innovation, and also um, the fact that you know the big players have been playing in these kind of fields for so long, and the, and it's taken um, other parties to kind of bring the innovation in, you know, uh, and yeah, it sounds like a very ferocious space to be in. Yeah, it's it, it it's amazingly satisfying space. So, um, and, and it's really enjoyable. I, I, you know, I've done really big companies and I've done really small companies and Tide is that sweet spot. You know, we're scaling, we're not so small that it's like incredibly difficult, yeah. but we're not so big that it's also bureaucratic and you know, that you're always in perpetual meetings. Yeah. Uh, it's this nice balance. And I, I love that. It's a great I sweet spot to be in. And it'd be interesting to see as Tide grows, you know, how your culture uh, handles that kind of uh, uh, the, the growth and, and, the, and the structures that, that start to form and the kind of rigid processes. Hopefully you don't do that, but it'd be really interesting to kind of follow the story as that happens. Um, c- coming back to your leadership then, um, I've got an interesting question here for you. What keeps you up at night, Guy? What keeps me up at night? So um, security, right? Uh, security is always a top order type concern. Um, also talent, um, that we're basically always upping the game and successfully getting that next generation talent and bringing that talent in, uh, you know, talent security, and then, you know, are we making the right bets, you know, with flutter and dart, what we were talking about earlier, is that, is that the right bet? Because, you know, I'm humble. I don't know. I'm Hmm. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I don't have the answers, right? I've got some really good frameworks, some really good expertise, but you know, you've got to have this kind of mentality of perpetual learning. You know, I'm, I'm completely okay with failure, right? Um, what, what you want to do though, is you want to fail fast so you can learn and adapt and avoid the big failure, right? Nice. If, yeah, uh, you know, nice. you don't want to, you don't want to fail like the Titanic. You, you no, 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 this is it. And you must have a lot of confidence around, uh, being able to kind of sit in that space because, um, to, to say, look, I really don't know uh, how this is going to go. I, mean, I really respect that. Me personally, I really respect that. But I can imagine that's quite a tough conversation with other business people, uh, unless the culture is such that you're able to have that conversation. Well, at Tide, we're data-driven. So what we do is we say we don't know. And then what we say is what question, what's the hypothesis? And then it's about driving the data in a small increment to basically tease out some data from our members to start to get the answer to that question. To me, that's the definition of kind of modern agility is being able to have the pipelines, the CI and CD, nimble and agile enough and the team decoupled that they can get those little increments, the little slices of innovation out there in members' hands in a beta alpha cycle, small little increments to get the data and feedback loop going to learn and adapt. Yes. And the faster you can do that, the quicker you're going to get to the answer. Brilliant. But but, but for people to sit there and think that they got that answer, that's ah, just not true. That's you, right. You know, you might you might have a good answer at kind of a high level, but the actual nitty-gritty of how to slice that and break that up and how it's going to basically actually work for a tied small business owner, boy, that's a much much harder answer. Yes, I totally agree. That's brilliant. Thank you for that advice. And um, I've got another nice question here for you, actually, is um, what books would you recommend to other tech leaders out there that have been real game changers for yourself? So one I've been reading recently that I keep coming back to is Sooner, Safer, Happier by Jonathan Smart. It's a, it's really good. It's really good. It's anti-patterns and patterns for business agility. So Sooner, Safer, Happier is a really, really good one. And then the other, the other one that I really love is um, Jeff Sutherland's Scrum. Yeah. I know Jeff Sutherland. Um, he's somebody that I've met and uh, I've worked with a little bit. Um, and Jeff's a great guy. He's, he invented Scrum and he's an incredible servant leader. He was a Air Force pilot in the Vietnam War. So he's got this incredible precision about how to organize and plan and uh yeah so yeah. Jeff, yeah i would th- those are two two ones that i've i would yeah. really 
I'm going to look out the uh, agility one because I've not got that one, and I'm I'm very intrigued. I, I, as soon as you said the word agility, there, I kind of my ears picked up, you know. And um, and if I was a tech genie, uh, I love doing this one. I should really wear an outfit when I'm doing this bit. So if I was a tech genie and I was going to offer you a wish, uh, a technical wish of some sort for your leadership, for your industry, for your teams, what would that wish be? Hmm, that's a great question. I tend to avoid wishes. Um, just in terms of thinking, because, well, that's a longer philosophical discussion. So I think that what I would ask for is this, the value around servant leadership, that we would really embrace that as an industry, mm. that we would really, really embrace this kind of sustainable pace, and that we need to be more humanistic about this pace. And that we would really be, you know, that we would stop drawing organizational design with people like the CTO at the top, and you start drawing it with the CTO on the bottom and the teams are on the top. That we would really get down with this idea of serving the team and unblocking the team and helping the team, developing the team and cultivating the team. Yes. I think that that's a really great way forward for us. And I think that society, you know, it, and that sort of leadership stuff, it comes, you know, if you go back to Mahatma Gandhi, if you go back to Martin Luther King, that's really those examples. And I think we just need to do more of that now. We just yeah. need to do more of it. We just need to be able to listen, adapt, and, and be more open to different perspectives, and then have these small units that are empowered to really move things forward and support them. So. Love it. Uh, is, and that kind of covers the one of the questions I had is, is getting back to our roots, which is the human, the human element in organizations. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I guess you've kind of answered this already, but my final question to you was, uh, uh, what would be your key takeaway to the men and women uh, tech leaders out there? Uh, what would be your gift to them to help them along? So the gift, I think, is that, you know, this perpetual curiosity, right? And and just really fighting for, in a, in a very positive way, right? Not like confrontational fight, but really fighting for time and space for curiosity, and that I think that's leads to innovation, right? So if you if you're in an environment and you're in a construct and you're in a kind of a culture in which there's no room for curiosity, and you know it's always there's just no room for it, then you're probably not going to get it, right? And you need to basically acknowledge that, and you need to cultivate it. You want to be in a culture, you want to be in a in a place that really aligns to your personal values and aligns to your business development goals, your ambitions. And those things, they're not separate. They yes. really are together. Yeah. And you, you can't have one without the other. Um, or you can with a high, heavy price. Yeah, brilliant. I love it. It's been fascinating speaking to you, Guy. Um, I could speak to you for hours. Maybe I'll get an opportunity to speak to you again around some of this uh, stuff because it, it is deep. I mean, it's, leadership, uh, when you really get into it, is deep, you know, and, and it has a huge impact on other people. And it's that human-centric uh, approach to, to, you know, to getting what businesses want and what, what makes people fulfill themselves, you know, so that's great. So thank you for your time, sir. Yeah, hey, thank you for having me. It's been, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation and I'm really looking forward to hearing the podcast and greatly appreciate it. Wow. Don't you just love disruptors? Particularly disruption in a stuffy industry drowning in its old ways. I love what Tide are doing to create exactly that. Disrupting the business banking market for exactly what the customer wants. And as for looking through the lens of yoga for our leadership and the way we do our work, that was fantastic. It reminds me of a wonderful book called Buddha at Work by B.J. Gallagher and Franz Metcalf. Anyway, what were your key takeaways? What did you learn from the podcast? Well, here are my key takeaways, and they're all through the lens of a yogi. Number one, the powerful art of finishing, the motto of stop starting and start finishing. My second key takeaway is the importance of setting levels of abstraction in business, getting that right so that it improves performance and interoperability. And my final and third key takeaway is about open source and the power and impact it's had on the technology industry and how it's advanced stuff, a real democratisation of efforts and best ideas winning. So I hail the open source community 
Well done to you all that have taken part and those that have engaged and supported this. So thank you, Guy, for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And to you, Tide, well done on your disruption. And I look forward to hearing more about you carving out an even bigger chunk of the market by delivering and focusing on what the customer needs, i.e. time, ease and smooth surface. Well done to you all. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter, where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.